0: Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF.
1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's talk to John Murphy. He does his stuff for a living. He's Bloomberg Intelligence uh, Analyst. He's based in London. He's trying to help poor Sam Fazelli, you know, with his research. We appreciate John joining the team a few years ago. John, talk to us about Prometheus here. What, what is Merck buying for $10.8 billion?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, nice to join you. Um, yeah. Yeah. What are they buying? They're essentially buying one product um, and, and it's a bit of a gamble some people might, might suggest. But what we've seen is we've seen phase two data in two indications. They're both irritable bowel disease indications, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Those data look very interesting. They look very competitive from an efficacy viewpoint. If, if and this is a, the key thing, if they were to repeat those data in phase three, we're probably not going to see that data till mid 2025 and assuming there's a good safety profile then you're going to start seeing analysts put multi billion dollar numbers in their in their spreadsheets you're going to start seeing high single digit billion dollars in their spreadsheets on which basis 10.8 billion dollars will look like a great great deal mm-hmm. but converse is clearly true here
1: hey john just give me kind of the broad strokes how does a biotech analyst value a company like prometheus i mean before you know like you closed friday with an equity value of a little over five billion dollars Do you guys just go out there and say, hey, I think the size of the market potentially is this, and I think this drug could get X percent of this market, and therefore I assign a multiple that way? I mean, how do you guys do that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think early on a lot of this is finger-in-the-air stuff, right? And Early on you're you're looking at the, the management team, you're looking at the mechanism of action, and you're looking at the disease area. Later on, and this is where these guys are now, later on you're looking at the clinical data and you're comparing it with other products out there on the marketplace. So we know in IBD, there's a lot of big drugs out there. Humira, right, north of $20 billion, for example. So you look at the data and you compare and contrast there. And versus those products, at the moment, this looks pretty competitive. So that that's kind of where where you are now. The next step then, of course, is, is a company like Prometheus going to be able to get out, going to be able to do the phase three itself. Is it going to be able to market the drug? Now they've got a big guy on board putting their arm around them and they've got Merck on board. And so again, people are going to start allocating greater value to to the products and to the company on the back of that.
3: Well, can we talk about the Merck side of, of this deal here? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. we're coming off, I think a couple of months ago, Pfizer and Seagen was the big biotech deal that everyone was talking about. From right. When it comes from Merck's perspective. This is not probably going to be the last acquisition that they make. How much cash do they have on their balance sheet? How much room do they have to work with to diversify their pipeline?
2: Right, that's, that's, that's a great question. It's absolutely spot on in, in, in terms of the commentary. I think first for context here, the key thing is Merck this year is going to have the world's biggest selling drug, Keytruda, a cancer drug. That goes off pattern in 2028 when it's going to be selling $33 billion. It's about 44% of Merck sales. So if Merck doesn't have some products to replace that is going to have a massive hole in its earnings so we saw for example Merck did a deal with Acceleron spent 11.5 billion dollars in 2021 you'll remember they missed out on CGen Pfizer have taken gen out we've seen Prometheus today there are going to be more deals to follow from Merck because their strategy or part of their strategy is to make sure they have additional growth legs when Keytruda goes off patent in terms of how do, how do they pay for these things what goes on in the balance sheet Merck's throwing off over 20 billion dollars of operating free cash flow annually. So these sort of deals are deals they can very straightforwardly do. They may pay cash, they may raise a bit of a debt in the marketplace, but it's not the sort of thing that's going to impact the the credit rating of a company like this.
1: John, you know, what we've all been dealing with uh, in the macro over, you know, the last, you know, s- you know, 6 months maybe even more is just a tightening of credit out there. Um tough to raise capital. Uh, cost of capital going higher for everybody in the marketplace. What does that mean for the biotech space? If I've got a really cool drug idea or if I've got the science, can I go out there and, and, and raise money for the early, early trials or is that a real tough go these days?
2: It really is a tough go these days, absolutely. Um, and it's and it's tougher and tougher and you can look at it from two points of view. You can say if you're, you're that biotech, what you really have to have ideally is you have to have – Hopefully, some clinical data. At the very least, you have to have a very good concept and a, and a, and a strong management and a credible manage, management team. In the absence of those, it becomes very, very tough. And that's when you look at the other side of the coin, then big pharma starts looking down and they can start to maybe cherry pick some of these better assets because, as you rightly say they're raising capital in this market is, is a real tough ask. Of course, for the farmer guys, they're so cash generative, it, it's something relatively straightforward for them.
3: Well, when you're talking about just M&A activity in general here, I mean, it feels like it's always going to be in these bigger players' best interests to diversify. We're hearing it from Merck, we're hearing it from Pfizer, Moderna as well, post-COVID vaccine. But is the M&A activity in any way indicative of kind of the macroeconomic conditions that you're seeing? Or is this something that's very specific to biotech?
2: Yeah, I, I don't think it relates to the macroeconomic side of things. What I, what I focus on really is the patent cycle. Remember that drug companies uh, when they bring a drug to market a drug has a 20-year patent life. It's probably taking 10 years to get to market. That means every 10 years on average half of their business they have they have to regenerate or, or find from somewhere else. And what we're seeing is between 2023 and 2030 there's nearly 400 billion 400 billion of annual sales potentially exposed to generics. so you've got a lot of these players some of the ones you just mentioned there you've got Pfizer Merck Novartis for example I mean very very vocal indeed about having to do deals not not huge deals not like the ones that we saw in the in the late 80s where we they were buying other large companies but really deals that that bring in product portfolio and late stage assets so more lock-on deals but we would expect to see a lot more deals in this kind of high single digit billion dollars going forward but but we don't think that today necessarily marks any sort of sea change at all. This is very much in keeping with with the strategy that Merck have an, uh, announced to the market already.
1: Hey John, if I'm a Merck shareholder, do I care whether they come up with the next big drug internally through their R&D or they go out and buy it? Do I care?
2: No. Short short sharp answer. No, I don't. Yep. I don't think so. I think some some investors like to see it coming through internally. But at the end of the day, why does that matter? If you're if you're the smartest out there in terms of accessing new technology or accessing new pipeline, that's as good as doing it in-house yourself.
3: Well, yeah, I mean
1: it's interesting. I mean because there's Merck spending 13 billion on R and D.
3: Yeah, um, 30 yep. seconds here, very quickly. What about the regulatory action? It feels like the consensus here is that this is going to have zero hurdles.
2: So I think yeah you. That's a a very important point, regulatory and FTC, and FTC have clearly looked like they're going to be more aggressive. However, there's no obvious overlap here. Merck doesn't have a big presence in immunology, slightly different to when you looked at, for example, when we looked at Pfizer-CGEN, and we did see some potential over that layer in bladder cancer. But this looks like it ought to be clearing regulatory hurdles without any major issues.
1: All right, John, thank you so much for joining us. Really, I really appreciate getting your insight. John Murphy Longtime pharmaceutical analyst on the street. Spent a lot of time at Goldman Sachs. Uh, he joined Bloomberg Intelligence a few years ago. Uh, so they've got a top-notch healthcare team uh, at Bloomberg Intelligence. Got folks uh, in the U.S., in London with uh, Fazelli and John Murphy, and a good team in Asia as well. So we got it covered uh, all over the place from every angle on the healthcare side. John Murphy, pharmaceutical analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, based in London. Merck buying Prometheus biotech company, $10.8 billion Dollars, nice little trade for a Monday morning.
4: The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state. Influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.
5: You're listening to The team, Cantor Live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Earnings are happening. Focus turns to earnings. also turns to dividends. A lot of folks are saying we need to pay more attention to dividends and focus on them going forward in this higher interest rate environment. Austin Graff, founder and CIO of Opal Capital joins us. Austin, talk to us about kind of how you guys view dividends. How how does that factor into your investment thesis?
6: So so we view dividends as a critical component to investor returns and we do that for a number of reasons, but I think the biggest reason is just the dividends have contributed. You know, depending on when you look back in the past, they've contributed anywhere between kind of forty and sixty percent of returns when you look at dividends and and the reinvestment of those dividends. So we think that investors that tend to look to those parts of the market will will end up uh, benefiting over time. We think the reason that that exists is. Is because it's a good signaling um, mechanism for management teams. Uh, management teams that are willing to distribute some of their cash flow to investors in the form of dividends and, and grow that distribution over time tend to tend to show that they're they're confident in their business going forward. And the businesses that do this also happen to be uh, relatively high quality companies. So so we think it puts investors in a pretty good kind of section of the market uh, if they focus on dividend paying companies.
3: Talk to us a little bit about that phrase, high quality company. Are we looking at it from a kind of cash perspective? How much cash do some of these companies have on their balance sheet? For example, I think in 2020, it was tech was all the rage because of that liquidity option. How do you value high quality at a time when that cash is diminishing?
6: Yeah, so high quality is, is kind of subjective and, and everyone has a different definition. Uh, some people say high quality is just, high free cash flow yield. And you know that 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 can be true in, in some situations, but uh company the like free cash flow yield can can vary over time. And so we really look for companies that both have sound balance sheets. Um, they have the ability to generate attractive free cash flows through the cycle. So it's not just kind of commodities companies that have a ton of free cash flow because they're in the right part of the pricing cycle for the commodity, but we want companies that have that balance sheet strength and stability um, to pay a decent dividend through the cycle and also grow the dividend and then finally, it comes down to the the really subjective measure is, is speaking with management and understanding kind of what their um, ability and willingness to to pay dividends is so companies like some of these tech companies that have a lot of cash um, they, they may be considered high quality, but then they end up. Putting that cash into a bunch of kind of moonshot projects that may not be that helpful for investors, and so we like to focus on companies who are focused on investing uh, for the long term, but also focused on um, putting money towards investments that have high returns on capital and aren't just kind of kind of shooting for the moon, hoping that you know whatever it is, kind of flying cars or you know space
1: exploration or
6: whatever. Um, they're putting money into, uh, hoping it turns into
1: a profitable business at some point in the future. Austin, speaking of dividends, uh, the banks have begun reporting earnings, and you think about some of these big banks, and they have dividend yields of 3 to 4% here. What did you see from some of the bank earnings so far, and, and have you changed your view towards the banks?
6: Yeah, so the bank earnings is really interesting because it kind of highlights what we think is going to be a theme through the first quarter reporting cycle. Um, So a lot of banks didn't really, so the economy or the economic data was relatively positive for a little over two-thirds of the quarter. And so when you look back at what banks are reporting, they're reporting on the first quarter, which was a relatively positive economic environment, we think most banks and most companies will actually turn in relatively acceptable reports in the first quarter. Uh, We think investors should really focus on what management teams are saying about um, the quarters to come as the dislocation uh, in the market seemed to have started in March. And and we think uh, management teams will will start preparing for that and start preparing investors for that with some of their commentary. And there will be kind of winners and losers. We saw JP Morgan was one of the big winners from the dislocation um, and and some of the, the smaller banks. Are not necessarily reporting catastrophic results but they're alluding to less earnings power going forward and we think that's a risk at, at current valuation levels
3: can we talk a little bit about buybacks here because it feels like a lot of companies again who are still sitting on cash and issuance etc that they had from 2020 and 2021 are actually still buying back their stock despite talking about Risks and layoffs and um, kind of macroeconomic gloom and doom. What happens to buybacks?
6: It's an interesting question. Some of the biggest buybacks of shares for the large technology companies, and they tend to buy back a lot of their shares to offset uh, dilution associated with compensation for employees. Um, there's actually no. We, we could talk about the, the tax on, on buybacks. There's no tax. Uh, associated with the return of, or the buybacks for, um, share or for management compensation. Um, there will be a 1% tax on buybacks that actually reduce share count. Uh, it's more of a, um, a discretionary payment. So we think if, if the economy really does turn south, you might see those buybacks, uh, slow down or even stop in many situations. Uh, but you do have a lot of tech companies that, are kind of forced to buy back shares, um, to make up for the dilution uh, that will take place if they don't buy back shares just because of the way that they compensate their employees.
1: So also when you look at a company like Apple, uh, here's a company on $165 billion of cash on its balance sheet. They'll have annual free cash flow of about $100 billion a year for the next couple of years, yet they pay no dividend. Yes, they have a massive buyback, but no dividend. I mean does that surprise you? Because it seems like they could put out a 2 or 3% dividend yield and attract a whole new group of income-seeking investors. When you see a company like Apple, what? how do you kind of view that?
6: Yeah, we, we look at that as management doesn't really value a, a dividend. Um, they value buybacks more than dividends. Over time, we think that that might change. Um, one of the changes we see is potentially with the buyback tax that was put in place. Um, there has been a kind of talk about increasing that. I think that president Biden mentioned it uh, around the state of the union speech uh, to the extent that the government starts to increase buyback taxes. We think that dividends become relatively more attractive uh, because you don't have the the significant difference in, uh, tax situation between dividends and buybacks. And we think more companies will start distributing cash flows um, in the form of dividends going forward. Uh, one, one, one thought on the Apple situation, and actually many tech to tech companies out there is just they haven't necessarily hit a point in uh, their life cycle where investors are expecting them to distribute that cash. Uh, we think over time, if, if investors pressure Uh, for a higher dividend, you you will get more serious uh, consideration from management teams.
1: All right, Austin, thanks so much uh, for joining us. I always love talking about stocks and and dividends and companies' dividend policies because a lot of folks are saying this next decade is the decade of the dividend. We've heard that a couple of times from a couple investors. Austin Graff, he's the founder and CIO of Opal. Uh, Capital. Before that, he was an equity analyst at PIMCO. You're listening to The Tape. Catch
5: our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg
1: 1130. If you think about it, over the last year, year and a half, at least to me, the most widely used term reference on earnings conference calls has been AI. Every company is talking about AI, artificial intelligence, how it's impacting their business, how they're using it. And I think most investors don't even know what it is. They're trying to figure out what is it, how does it impact the companies that I invest in. So we figured we'd go to a professional here who does this stuff. Ashley Still, she's a senior vice president and general manager for Creative Cloud and Document Cloud at a little tech company out. In California called Adobe. Uh, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, let's just start off. I would love to get your definition of what is AI, and then how does it apply to some of the businesses that Adobe is in?
4: Well, first, thanks for having me. Um, and, you know, at Adobe, our mission is to help everyone bring their creative vision to life. And we certainly believe that AI um, gives us a huge opportunity to do that um, for professionals and non-professionals alike. So, you know, AI simply for for me is um, when algorithms um, kind of are aiding um, uh, software to to do tasks, and it often helps automate repetitive, um, monotonous um, uh, activities that traditionally humans have undertaken. And one of the areas that we're really focused on right now is an area of AI called generative AI. And that enables um, uh, people, you know, it's it's services like ChatGPT or Dolly, um, and Adobe just introduced a service called Adobe Firefly that enables you to simply just enter text and the models and algorithm produce images based on the text that you've written. And so obviously this enables... A huge opportunity for people to express their ideas and create content in new and different ways.
3: So how does that align with kind of just the broader tech space? I guess, I mean, I'm thinking of it as ChatGPT is the easiest example of it. It kind of makes sense that Alphabet uh, w- would hop into it, that Microsoft would hop into it because they have search engines and that makes it um, kind of an easier alignment. But then, how do other companies within the tech space adopt it? It feels like AI and ChatGBT even is a very wide umbrella. Can you give us some more examples?
4: Absolutely. So, uh, you know, for Adobe, we see this as a huge opportunity to aid editing. Um, if you think about what our tools do, whether it's video or imaging or photography or design, um, our tools enable creative professionals or marketers to produce content. And they might do that with starting with images or graphics that they've created themselves or, um, you know, if you're a large company, you're probably licensing content as well. This is a huge opportunity. is another source of content, Think of it that way. Um, where if you're in Photoshop and you need to add an element to a design that you're working on, um, instead of going and and you know finding it in your files or from a colleague, you can literally just produce it on the fly. So it is uh, uh, again, a powerful tool to help with editing. Um, on the marketing side, again, it enables marketers in in more text examples, to create copy, um, and and you know one of the big trends in digital and for companies is personalization. Um, and a lot of content and experiences are being created in order for businesses to have more relevant experiences for their customers and And humans can't produce enough content <laughs> to get to true one to one personalization. And so AI is going to be a really important, um, uh, again, tool in the in the tool chest to achieve true personalization and 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 unlocks the power of digital.
1: Hey Ashley, you know, as more and more companies and individuals, for that matter, embrace artificial intelligence, there's concerns out there uh, about control, uh, like having control over AI, what it can do. How do you guys at Adobe think about that and manage that risk?
4: yeah, so it is incredibly important, as content is produced in more and more ways, right by both humans as well as algorithms and machines, um, for to have transparency. and uh, and and again, I, I think there's uh, uh, whether you think of it as control or transparency, cons- ultimately, consumers have to trust the content that they're seeing whether it's from a brand in a marketing context, whether it's from news organizations. And Adobe founded, um, along with now 900 partners, an initiative called the Content Authenticity Initiative. And what this really focuses on is transparency for digital content. And we do that by um, adding metadata to content um, as it's being edited and produced and that enables uh, news sites, businesses, et cetera, to provide that transparency um, uh, to the consumer to, to just be clear, was this content created with the help of generative AI? How was this content edited, right? Is it real or is it fake? <laughs> um, so we're really focused on transparency uh, with both AI, but just in general um, with digital content.
3: Are you at all worried about regulatory pushback or scrutiny from Washington or even scrutiny from kind of your demographic as well? as more and more people are talking about adopting AI, it feels like there's privacy concerns um, associated with them. How are you thinking about
4: that? Well, one of uh, we, we believe very strongly that um, uh, everybody participating in AI, in AI needs to take a responsible approach. And so, for example, at Adobe, what we've done is we only train our models on content that we have a license to, right? Or content that's on the, the Internet where the license has expired. Um, and we believe this is really important um, uh, because a lot of people don't want their content to be used in training. You know, we represent the creative community. And there are many people in the creative community who don't want their style um, uh, kind of quote-unquote stolen from them. Um, And so we do believe it's important to take a very responsible approach. And there's also parts of the law that are very unclear, right? Where, uh, you know, copyright in the age of AI will evolve. Right now, um, uh, again, with generative AI, if an artist produces a work through text prompts. There's right. no ability to copyright that work. So there are definitely areas where the where the law um, will need to evolve, and, and we think it's important as well that companies are responsible in how they're sourcing data for right. uh, AI.
1: Hey, Ashley, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate kind of getting the benefit of your wisdom on AI, artificial intelligence. Ashley, still, Senior Vice President and General Manager, Creative Cloud and Document Cloud at Adobe.
5: You're listening to The Taint. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We are in a thick of bank earnings season. Uh, That means we talked to Herman Chan. We talked to him a lot. I'm kind of tired of this guy, but he covers the regional banks. He's really, really good at one of the top guys on the street. But we're also joined now by Neil Sipes, Equity Research Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's a proud University of Dayton Flyer. Neil, the last time I saw you, you were an associate working with Allison Williams. Now they promoted you to analyst?
7: Yeah, that's right. How did Um, that happen? Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, many years of kind of getting into the details of some of those some of those bigger banks, uh, you get a lot of experience a in lot kind of, of understanding, you know, what all these business lines are, are driven by and ultimately how these businesses are positioned.
1: All right. So what'd you see from Schwab today? And then, you know, I'll ask you for your thoughts later on kind of what we saw Friday from some of the bigger banks. But what'd you, what'd you see from Schwab today?
7: Yeah, sure. So I, I think from Schwab, you know, from the from the start, I, you see the the strength of their business. You see return on equity in excess of twenty percent. You see pre-tax margin above forty percent. Uh, ultimately, you saw the net interest margin decline this quarter sequentially, uh, and that's the biggest question for investors: is what's going on with deposits? Um, ultimately, what we saw is deposits decline on the platform by about forty billion this quarter. Um, that accelerated I mean, from that's, the. F- that's huge, right? Yeah. That's 40, 40% huge. Forty percent of anything's big, but
1: I mean, when it's money, that's really
7: big. yeah. And and for Schwab specifically, I mean, that's that's sort of the proposition of how they make money is ultimately the uninvested cash in their clients' accounts uh, is what ultimately gets reinvested into securities on the balance sheet, uh, and that's really the driver of net interest margin. When those deposits leave, uh, you start having issues on on the liquidity front. Um, and that's kind of the question and what the, you know, what the uh, CEO was trying to quell some of those concerns today with, of how they're going to provide funding going forward as deposits leave.
3: Herman, hop on into this conversation. Herman again. Um, <laughs> that guy. Uh, Herman, hop into this conversation. Talk to us a little about what we can actually expect from these earnings. I think Thursday is the big day where we're getting the majority of the regional bank right. earnings. What is or is there kind of one bank or two or three that you're really paying attention to? Last Friday, it was all about J.P. Morgan, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, I think tomorrow it's going to be you about all the big three, but on the regional basis, what's what's on your radar?
8: Yeah, sure. So, Wednesday and Thursdays are the big days for the regional bank reporting for the first quarter. Uh, we had M&T report today, PNC on Friday. The biggest uh, issue and the focus is going to be on deposits, as, as Neil mentioned earlier. Where are we on deposits? How do they stack with the rest of the group? Um, the best so far has been. Uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, and then uh, M&T was actually showing steady and stable deposits, which is a great sign. Um, we're still waiting on some of the others that, that the numbers look maybe a bit poor on, which would be somebody like Western Alliance and, and banks like First Republic. But we're probably hoping to see pretty stable, the, the maybe down a little bit for deposits across the group.
1: Hey Neil, on Friday some of the big banks reported I, I was not here, I was driving all over the central coast of California, I missed it. But it was the story there for a lot of these bigger banks and will it continue to be this positive net interest margin story, is that one of the key things that you're looking at?
7: Yeah, and I, I think the question is still just surrounds deposits and particularly when you're looking at some of, the, some of those larger players, the JP Morgan's Bank of America's of the world um, they're the ones who are perhaps you know, winning some of that share of deposits as you see things kind of reshuffle between institutions. Uh, and so ultimately the question is that, and obviously as we have you know, objectively higher interest rates now, the question is what's going to happen with loan growth as you, you know, get to these elevated levels on, on, on short-term interest rates. Uh, and then particularly when you look at investment banking, that, that continues to remain slow, um, whereas trading was benefited by some of that rate volatility.
3: Well, Neil, a follow up on the loan growth story, because it feels like there's kind of this catch 22. On the one hand, it's this big influx of deposits that Jamie Dimon, I believe on Friday, Paul, you missed this part. Jamie yes. Dimon had a lot to say I'm sure on Friday. Um, but Jamie Dimon said, look, by the end of the year, that's going to reverse. This is a temporary measure. Um, but then on the other hand, you have the loan growth, which is also slowing, does that, does that mean by the end of the year everything that's being viewed as a major positive for the big banks is just going to fade away?
7: Yeah, well, I, I think it's 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 sort of difficult to say. I think there's a lot of variables between now and the end of the year, and and a lot of that's going to ultimately play out into what we see in terms of loan growth, what the benefit of interest rates is, um, and, and I even think you know Herman Chan may actually have you know, better insight on that as it relates to kind of the loan growth that you're seeing, uh, perhaps more so at commercial versus consumer at some of his banks.
8: Yeah, I, I would say that commercial uh, lending is still fairly strong. You saw some growth from m in terms of CNI growth, so that's a positive sign. Uh, we're still waiting on guidance for m the call's going on right now, but that'll be the big driver of, uh, of sentiment going forward. Um, overall, it seems like, Credit availability could, uh, could weaken a bit given the fact that we're seeing higher deposit costs and, and banks needing to pay up for deposits to, to retain those relationships. That probably could spur some weaker demand going forward. And we've seen that across uh, some, some consumer lending types already with auto loans those rates on the auto loans are already driving something to the effect of 7%, which creates some sicker shock for a lot of the potential buyers of of cars these days. So that's something that we're looking um, into going ahead for the rest of the year.
1: You know, what are the big banks saying about kind of the capital markets business? Are they kind of saying, you know, get your hopes up for 2023. We'll, we'll, we'll think about 24.
7: Yeah, I, I think unfortunately, it's sort of been a kicking the can down the road on on, you know, we expect it to continue to get better at some point. But when that some point is, uh, you know, we're not too certain. And you just look at kind of metrics of volatility, uh, where interest rates are the uncertainty around interest rates, the economy, it's just challenging for capital raising to happen. It's challenging for deals to take place. Uh, when there's still not clarity on, on ultimately where interest rates are gonna be um, going forward. And so uh, I think you know, 2024 is, is sort of uh, where they're starting to push those, uh, you know, those gu- guidances of you know, potential for hope.
1: All right, uh, like many people, Neil, I'm, I'm a fan of Jamie Dimon, but his stock just went up another notch in my mind telling his managing directors to be back five days a week. Has there been any, what's the feedback that you've heard maybe even on the call, Jamie Diamond's comments to it? Have you heard any feedback there? And will do you, do you expect other banks to follow suit? Because a lot of times Jamie kind of leads the pack.
7: Yeah, yeah, he can tend to be a bellwether. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, to, to that extent, perhaps it's, it's more focused on that senior talent and you want to have those people in the office, particularly for the benefits of those that are junior below them. Uh, because ultimately that's, you know, that's how you're gonna foster that culture, which we know is incredibly important uh, in investment banking, ultimately driving relationships for the business. Uh, And so as you ultimately see, you know, work from home being phased out a little bit, uh, it may start at the higher ranks and ultimately feed down uh, into the lowers. And of course, you know, we'll see if this does uh, bleed into the other banks and and others um, as ultimately that can sort of be a competing factor for talent.
3: The only reason Paul Sweeney is a fan of Herman Chan. The only reason is because he comes in five days a week. Yeah, he
1: he brings it. No mailing it in for this guy.
8: The best ability is availability.
1: Oh, the best ability is availability. Boom, I'm taking that one. Put it on a shirt, (laughs) tattoo
3: it on Paul's forehead. Um, Herman, your take then, I mean, let's just continue with that theme. That's the Mm -hmm. take from the big banks. Is it that important for the regional banks?
8: Uh, In terms of uh, folks coming in, I think there's still a lot of work from home mentality. Uh, So we'll... We haven't heard a uh, directive from the CEOs on down. So if if the Jamie Dimon issue of, of making folks uh, coming in, at least from the MD level, you could see some of the, the regionals sort of follow suit, but we haven't heard of any of the, of the uh, more mandated uh, coming into the office, at least not yet.
3: Herman, really quickly, I want to ask you about buybacks specifically. Mm-hmm. I think I asked you this last week. You had yeah. a fantastic answer. It's worth repeating. When you're looking at some of the valuations of these regional stocks, they are far trading far below their kind of normal or average price to book ratios. Isn't That's that right. a no brainer for these regional banks to buy back their stock?
8: It it makes it really enticing because you know our group, um, the the regional bank group that we, that I cover, it's trading about one times tangible book value adjusted for um, the AOCI. So, uh, really low levels, uh, attractive levels. We're still. Um, in a bit of uncertainty though, PNC came out on Friday and said they were halting uh, buybacks until they get more clarity on maybe uncertainty from the market and also from the regulators. So until we, we see some of that um, clarity appear, it seems like there, there could be some some less activity from a buyback standpoint. There are others that, that have really strong capital ratios uh, that we cover. Uh, m t is one, uh, East West is another, that really have strong capital and operating really well that could continue to do buyback. So it'll be a mix.
1: All right, gents, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Herman Chan, who has saved our bacon uh, many times <laughs> over the last month, helping us get through what has been a stressful time for some of these regional banks. Herman Chan, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst covering those regional banks. And Neil Sipes, man, what a strong first Newbie. showing on my show. <laughs> Neil Sipes, Equity Research Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, we trained him up, and here he is, Uh put out some great research in helping us understand what's going on with the banks.
5: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: Looking at the uh, Big Take story, you know, we're all big fans of the Big Take story because they are really, usually, usually very, very interesting topics, but always deeply, deeply reported. And t- today's is uh, uh, no different. Uh, and it goes the headline, interest-only loans to Hamptons set impale First Republic. That does not sound good there. So let's talk to Jenny Sh- she, uh, Surnane. Shurane, I'm sorry, Jenny Surnane. <laughs> thank you. Uh, for Bloomberg News, she was one of the uh, reporters on this story. And You think about these big, Jenny, you go out to the Hamptons, not that I go there because I'm a Jersey Shore guy. You think about the Hamptons, you see these big, big homes. They're not all cash. They're getting up some big mortgages associated with those. And I would think for a banker, that would be good business. Talk to us about First Republic and, and the business they were doing out in the Hamptons.
9: Yeah. No, I I think you're exactly right. You know, for years and years, uh, First Republic has really focused on banking more of these wealthy consumers. And so um, in our reporting, we learned that a big chunk of the mortgage business that they did with with wealthy individuals was actually comes in the form of interest only mortgages. So that means that for the first 10 years of that loan. That's still
1: a thing? (laughs) I thought that was like banned after the great financial crisis. So
9: it's interesting because they kind of reached this level of infamy because bankers were offering them to lower income consumers who wouldn't be able to keep up with the payments, you know, once that interest only period ended. And so this was kind of a new take on on maybe an old foe. Um, and it was really meant to, to, yeah, be a way to get a, their claws into these wealthy consumers and, and hopefully get more of their banking business generally. So they had this large wealth management arm and and lots of other things that they could offer them. And so this was like this sweetheart deal that they could do to to sort of sink their claws in early and, and, and bank more of these folks
3: also Jenny welcome back by the way (laughs) she She was just in London for three months I think Um, very exciting stuff yeah great pictures on Instagram just saying (laughs) Um, very cool how was that by the way
9: it was awesome it was really I mean it was interesting because um, I was there for the first three months of the year and so uh, watching the US banking crisis and then kind of being involved in the European banking crisis with Credit Suisse um, it was interesting to kind of have a different different seat at the table.
3: Very, very cool. Um, so bringing it back stateside, though, we we're talking about First Republic. Who fills that slot with First Republic? Are there other candidates here that could maybe take some of that market share?
9: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, they're not pulling back as far as we know. So I... I these guys did this more than anyone else but other banks do offer these products so this it, that should be one thing we're careful about is that you know JP Morgan does this others do too it's a big business um, and I think the problem with these loans now is that as first Republic looks to get a capital infusion or potentially looks for a buyer to to kind of help it shore up and 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 get a little bit better here that's why this has become a problem because these loans while they perform great and they have all these wealthy customers attached to them carry a lot of interest rate risk and so as interest rates go up the value of these loans goes down and so for any buyer that would be a problem looking to to fill that balance sheet hole.
1: So is First Republic looking to kind of work its way out of this is that kind of what they've been telling people because it seems like I don't know if you're buying a house in Hamptons you're probably a pretty good credit.
9: yeah. yeah, I wouldn't
1: mind. I could take on that risk <laughs> at a certain price, maybe.
9: Well, the problem is that it's just become such a big hole. So, you know, it, it, we're in the middle of regional bank earnings season. So, you're hearing a lot of these guys talk about um, the unrealized losses on the bonds on their balance sheet, which has become a huge problem. At First Republic, that's a problem too, but it's not nearly as big of a problem as as the losses unrealized, to be sure, on these mortgages that they've made. And so, as they look for a potential buyer, as they look at an M and A deal, what we've heard is that this is the thing that's causing a lot of folks to balk and say you know this is just too big you know even if they paid zero dollars a share um, they'd still have 13 billion dollars of a hole that they would need to fill and so it's just an untenable deal
3: are there other regions that are seeing similar things i mean we associate as new yorkers we associate the ham and new jersey first
1: yes (laughs) go on
3: (laughs) associate the hamptons uh, with that kind of obviously very very wealthy share but are we seeing similar stories coming out of I don't know, Miami, uh, San Francisco, other um, wealthier
9: parts of the country. Yeah, no, we, when we looked at the data underlying these mortgages, we've, we figured out that they actually they had a really big presence in, in the Hamptons, in certain wealthy neighborhoods in New York. You know, the Upper West Side was a popular destination, Tribeca, another one. Um, but then, yeah, beyond that, you know, we looked at uh, Southern California. There was a lot um, in the wine country of California, um, in Silicon Valley, you know, where all these tech billionaires are being minted. So um, this was definitely not just a New York thing. Um, but yes, obviously, for the Bloomberg uh, consumer, that was a popular one. Um, yeah, because I'm looking
1: at it. I mean, in this story, people, you can find the story. Bloomberg.com slash big take or NI Space Big Take Go on on the terminal. And you're going to take a look at this because I got some great maps, like kind of heat maps, of Northern California, Southern California around LA, the Hamptons, Manhattan. And you guys have a kind of heat map to show kind of where the concentration is and of some of these loans. And boy, you look at the Southern California and the one that shows up the brightest on the heat map is Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so
9: I wonder who lives there. <laughs> yeah, just a few billionaires. <laughs> so, all
1: right, so what's next for for this bank here? I mean, is there a certain time frame where, you know, they've got to do something because the, the market's not really buying in on it?
9: Yeah, no, I think, you know, the big thing that we're looking forward to is their earnings next week, because that's when we'll really get the first look at just um, how big the deposit outflows have been in the last month you know you hear it anecdotally and we talked to lots of big customers who've said that they've pulled their funds but at the same time they had you know the biggest U.S. banks do a, a deposit infusion of 30 billion dollars and so that was really meant to shore them up give them more time to, to eventually either have a capital infusion or, or find a buyer um so yeah, next Monday I think is uh, is that's uh, when they re-
1: that's when first Republic the reports. big dance exactly
9: yeah so that's our first that's our next real look at, at, at under the hood and kind of what's going on with these guys because uh, we really haven't gotten that many on the record updates from them um, in the last month or so that, that this has been a crisis. All
1: right, so what other I mean, it, it seems like this, and I, mean, I really want to get your take. It seems like the crisis aspect of this turmoil we've been dealing with the banking space in the U.S. It's past. Are we being too you know, too early on that?
9: I think it's, I think it's early. I mean, I think we, so f- the biggest thing is that a lot of the banks that we're most worried about haven't reported earnings yet. And the big fear that I think folks have is that they might miff on the disclosure aspect. So we've seen that a few times already where a bank has even pre-reported and maybe not given investors exactly the data or information they wanted. And, and it's kind of caused a whole new calamity. And so um, I think that will be the big key test, especially, I think, Wednesday and Thursday. We have a lot coming up next Monday, obviously, with First Republic. Um, it'll be a big key test that that really, you know, do they not only do they say, you know, numbers that inspire confidence, but do they say it in the right way? Do they release the right numbers? And, right. and so I think that's the big question.
1: All right. You were the former editor-in-chief of the Daily Tar Heel, <laughs> so I have to make sure I get my facts straight. Your basketball team started the season, preseason, ranked number one in the country <laughs> And they didn't even go to the tournament. And so I don't snooty. think that's. How many times has that happened? Oh, it had never happened before then. Yeah. So are you guys even going to suit up a team next year to face my <laughs> dookies or what?
9: We are. We're going to suit up a team. I mean, I hope it goes better this year. I I honestly think that um for most Tar Heels, the season before when we right. sent your dookies <laughs> Yes, home in that's the Final right. Four, Very good. Will feel good for kind of. At least a few more So I am a big or fan or of
1: Hubert Davis. I liked him in, when he played for Carolina. I liked it when he was w- with the Knicks. Um, <laughs> what's the feeling down in Chapel Hill about Hubert Davis in terms of, oh, boy, that was kind of embarrassing.
9: Yeah. I mean, that wasn't his team. So, you know, that was still Roy's team. I think um, – I think we give them a few more seasons. I mean, we're not, uh, we don't throw babies out with the bathwater down in Chobwell. We give people okay. a few times to, to season up.
1: All right. So you're going to, they're going to have a team. We can confirm that. <laughs> Will you go down to any games?
9: You know what? I don't have any plans to go down to games this year. I need to make some. Um, well, if I you need to some make Duke tickets, just come
1: to me. I can set you up. You'll be oh. all set to go. We'll put you right there.
9: Oh, right in a, a in defector. Going to Cameron crazy. I don't think I would enjoy that. And very we have much. another
1: ACC with. with yeah, uh, pretty. U- yeah. But uh, did you ever go to a basketball game? Um, no. <laughs> did you go to a football game?
9: No.
3: Wow. I wow. just I'm not a sports gal. Not even like. I know, but it's a social. I mean, UVA thing. alum. Yeah. I mean,
1: the little kind of UVA the boys get their suit and ties, coats and ties on. They look all nice. And the, and so the,
3: embarrassing. <laughs> no. uh, I'm not. I'm not. Look, I'm not a very kind of um, college spirit kind of gal. So I just wow. never never did. All right. Okay. I did go to plenty of soccer games though, and. Right swim meets because you know
1: all right good stuff jenny serene <laughs> uh finance reporter for bloomberg news uh and i think the feather in her cap is a former editor-in-chief of the daily tarhill that is a big job not kidding you know for those college papers and the daily tarhill is an excellent paper and be the editor-in-chief there is pretty pretty cool too um so that's good stuff jenny serene big take story out there uh, with her team check it out bloomberg.com slash
5: You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business App. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship
1: New York station. Just say, "Alexa, play Bloomberg 11:30." All right. Here's a headline that got my attention. Um, The pig still hasn't fully exited the python, and I think, having read it, the pig in this case is the pandemic and the you know the economic hit from the pandemic. So I, I don't know. That's my best guess. John Authors, he's the author. He's the one to blame for this. He's the senior editor at Bloomberg Opinion, one of our favorite folks to, to chat with. John, talk to us about this. The, the pig still hasn't fully exited the Python. What are you talking yeah. about?
10: Okay. The, if you go down to, I think it's the last paragraph oh uh, of the main piece. It's before you get to work. my interesting piece about soccer refereeing in England, um, <laughs> in the survival tips. Um, yes, it's about, it's about the pandemic. Um and obviously it's created uh, a very big uh shock, a big reaction. Um, you know, that, like a, uh a, a tsunami or something like that, the idea that, that, that something has been hit very hard and it will create uh, uh turbulence, it'll create waves for a while afterwards. Uh and because this is being refracted through human behaviour, it's that much harder to predict exactly how those waves are going to work. Um, but it's obvious that we still haven't got through that. Now, the particular um, point that I was making there concerns um, concerns tech, where um, there was a lot of spending brought forward during uh, the worst days of the pandemic, and that has raised some Bearish people to suggest that this could be like the uh, the Y two K um, incident for those who uh, who remember it that that uh, when when companies splurged on it spending ahead of the millennium because they were worried about what would happen when the clock moved from ninety nine to zero zero uh, and one of the one of the, the uh, consequences of that was that spending was much lower on IT than had been expected for several years thereafter, but that's one of the concerns at the moment, that we'll find that that pig hasn't exited the Python <laughs> yet, but, that uh, <laughs> that that uh, companies are still, in fact, able to reduce their spending to where they were.
3: Yeah, so uh, that... So that's,
10: that's, that's the Python. Uh,
3: it, it's quite the image. Also, Paul, did you know that when I um, first... I think early, early days of meeting John authors. uh, Mm. Speaking of pythons, um, I was a producer (laughs) on television. This is Mm -hmm. what, four years ago, maybe. And we, I would produce John author segments and he, this was during like Brexit or something negotiations were happening or something along those lines. And he explained Brexit, to me through the lens of Monty Python. Okay. And that is my earliest memory of John Authors. Then I went to go sit by him and learned plenty about there Monty you Python and Marcus. Yes,
10: <laughs> yes, uh, I think it was the Ministry of Silly Walk. Was, uh, <laughs> right. Exactly. On that particular attempt, um,
3: Again, I, both I, I, either
10: that or the black knight who didn't know he was beaten even when he had both his arms sides. All of
3: this rings bells for sure. Anyway, John, talk let's about something less important. Like let's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 let's talk about uh, yeah. what's going on in France right now. Look, um, you, I think mm. one of the best parts about your columns, you kind of have a take on everything. Um, And I want to get your take on on France in particular, because as I am getting more educated on the matter of kind of pension reform and and the labor strikes that I've been told happen every year um, in in, in France and Mm. um, around around the country, talk to us a little bit about why this time the pension reform is such a
10: big deal. Okay, the pension reform is such a big deal because, uh, well, there are a number of different layers to this. Obviously, it's a very important test of um, Emmanuel Macron, who has really been the only uh, modern-style technocrat um, who tries to rescue ideology and certainly tries to rescue um, populism, who who has managed to stay successful within Europe, who got himself elected a second time. And he has now staked an immense amount on this, and it's a country where um, the far right, the, the Front National, is very strong. So that, that's uh, one leg of this is the, is the political. Um, there's also the fact that France has always been, I could almost illustrate this with you from, from uh, Monty Python thinking about this, that, that, that uh, France has always been very much more prepared to take to the streets than other Western European nations; they're, they're, it's uh, it's 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 part of the culture, as you were saying, that 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 you might get labour unrest, but they're also that much more prepared to uh, to uh, demonstrate and to fight, and uh, a little bit like John Cleese playing an extremely rude Frenchman addressing the knights in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which you can look up later. <laughs> um, and then, but I think the most important point is. France has a very generous national pension scheme. The, the French are much less bothered about a nanny state, about a strong state than, you know, most other of the big Western capitalist nations. And, uh, raising the retirement age by two years is, has really got them. And this is something that is likely to be necessary across the world. Um, because we are all subject to the same demographics, and this is a an interesting case study in what happens when you really try to bite the nettle and reduce retirement ben, uh, benefits, retirement costs in a big developed economy. Yeah, uh, that that is the the key worrying point to this. That that's what uh, is what it could portend for the the rest that the Macron has. Uh, and I guess you have to say it's the courage to do what any good technocrat would say you need to do and try to grasp the issue of reducing pension right. costs. But let's see if he can do it.
3: So so the retirement age now from 62 to 64. And, and initially yeah. when this was uh, brought to attention, uh, Emmanuel Macron was going to do this unilaterally. This wasn't going to be put uh, to a vote exactly. until, of course, the protests for, first came on. Uh, John, talk to us a little bit about any sort of market fallout here, because inevitably, if you change the pension reform, that has a very real impact on the French national budget, uh, and therefore yes. you would think um, on the sovereign debt as well. Are we seeing any kind of market reaction? What not, What is the trade here? Not,
10: sig- not significantly. I, I think. Um, I mean, what is interesting is that French bond spreads you know, spreads compared to bonds of uh, of uh, French bonds have increased a little but we're talking about com- compared to um the kind of spreads we've seen it's uh, on italian or spanish debt at different times you know countries that really did look as though they could conceivably leave the, uh, yeah. the eurozone it's still nothing much to uh, much to consider you can you can see that it's uh, a problem but uh, that, that markets are taking notice of but i would say that that, that the markets are not at this point, a critical player in the French drama, in the way that they have been, uh, say most most noticeably in Italy. If you have, um, if you have a clear cut political defeat, which I'm not predicting, but if you did, if you had a uh, if if the pension uh, pension retirement age stays exactly where it is, and right. uh, Macron just admits he's beaten, both on the political and on the economic reasons, that's <clears throat> going to be pretty seriously bad for, for French debts. Yes, de- definitely. But we haven't got
1: there yet. Yeah. Hey, John. Just we got about a, a minute left. I, I know you're on hmm. holiday last week from reading your columns, and I believe you're in England. Yeah. Um, yes. Talk to us. What's your takeaway from? Talking to families and friends and hanging out at the pubs. How's the average Englishman feeling or Englishwoman feeling these days, you know, post Brexit, post COVID, post all that stuff?
10: Um, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've actually had sort of lots of um, uh, cheerful conversations with people in the last week, which is nice to know. I, I, I think that Brexit as a whole, I, I, it's very difficult because, obviously, I was uh, always against it. I think the country is very slowly but clearly coming around to the view that it was a mistake. Um, and we'll see how long that will happen. I think you're still talking about decades before uh, there could be any attempt to rejoin. But there is a – things have not – improved in fact they've got worse since um, since brexit and that's becoming more apparent
1: all right good stuff John thanks so much uh, for joining us always appreciate getting your perspective John authors he's a senior editor at Bloomberg opinion uh, he's got uh, he writes uh, a lot of stuff a lot of really interesting stuff so you can check that on bloomberg.com slash opinion John's work and plus all the other opinion. Uh, writers as well, and also on OPIN Go uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal to get all that great uh, Bloomberg opinion pieces out there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.